0: Hi, and welcome to the Bits and Trees podcast. I'm your host, Matt Machuga, and today I'm joined by one of Auth0's site reliability engineers, Jusso Teagues.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Oh, good, despite giving awkward introductions. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a software engineer. Uh, I'm Brazilian. I have been working remotely uh, doing mostly backend related stuff for around 11 years now, and uh, in the last... Three years, I would say, I have been working mostly in terms of uh, observability and reliability, which led me to start working in site reliability engineering here in Auth0.
0: So I should point out that I am uh, a coworker of yours, we both, both work at Auth0. Um, and just based off the progression of this, I do have a little bit of insight. Um, so I want to ask, was this an intentional move, or is, was this kind of just pushed upon you as the needs at the time of the company?
1: Uh, A little bit of both. Uh, So I'm really interested in scalability issues. And it it was one of the the reasons I joined the company. And uh, we started growing a lot. And we started having different scalability problems. And we started having reliability problems. And I kind of naturally transitioned into working more on these areas. Because I was really interested about the problem. Things break in really, really interesting in different ways when you add load on them. So it's, it's a very
0: uh, fun topic. What do you think gives you the biggest rush about the whole thing?
1: Hmm. I think incident response is something that is really interesting, and it, it, it makes me feel alive Although, (laughs) this kind of sounds bad because when you are responding to an incident, this is something that is affecting customers. But in any case, it's something that uh, I didn't have to deal with when I was working only on the software development side. I had pressure, let's say, from deadlines and things like that. But it's something really different when you have to make a choice that is affecting millions of people at the same time or um, several thousands of requests per second. And you have to make quick decisions. You have to talk to people and give directions and it's all on you. So it's uh, something that I was surprised that I kind of do reasonably well. And uh, it's something that I've been enjoying ever since.
0: How do you keep a level head when you know that millions of people are being affected?
1: At first, you don't. <laughs> in the beginning, it's really hard. Uh, there is a lot of pressure when you start getting on call for something like that. Uh, in my previous jobs, I would have the luxury of having, let's say, business hours uh, that had more traffic. And when I had to do something serious or attend to an incident at night, for instance... It would be okay uh, it, it's completely fine when you have a system that it's uh, mostly used during business hours to do a database migration or a big change in the middle of the night however when you deal with something like alt zero in which you have uh, thousands of requests per second during uh, every day um, the pressure is is really different and when i started being on call i was kind of Scared at first, and uh, quickly got a little bit miserable with it uh, because it's uh, it's really easy to beat yourself up because in the beginning you will make mistakes, you will make decisions that are um, sometimes too slow, and sometimes you could have made uh, the quick uh, the right decision quicker, and you could have fixed the problem sooner. Uh, so in the beginning it's really hard, but one of the, the greatest things about this whole field of uh, reliability engineering is that we always try to apply uh, software engineering um, techniques and strategies to this whole operational area. So instead of just saying, oh, well, that sucked, we actually review every incident after it happened and we try to think, OK, what part of the process didn't work? Uh, we don't. Talk about in terms of how could Dirceu uh, screw up here? Uh, How how did he screw up here? Uh, We talk about, okay, how did the process fail? How could we ensure that the next time no one makes the same mistake? How can we ensure that we have automation or procedures or training or role-playing exercises to ensure that the next time someone has to deal with this kind of situation, they can make the proper decision. And this is really interesting because you start applying these concepts like uh, doing retrospectives and and analyzing and bug fixing to processes and people. So instead of um, saying that, oh, I could have found the problem sooner if I knew X, Y, and Z, you can start thinking in terms of processes. Okay, Uh, how can I ensure that I don't even have to investigate what the problem is next time. How can I make sure that the monitoring and the tooling is available to tell me what is wrong? So there's no chance of me making, or someone else making uh, a mistake like this. So as you go and apply these concepts, these techniques into past incidents, you kind of start, one, building your own confidence because you realize that, okay, this is really about the process. Uh, it's okay mm-hmm. if I make mistakes, and also you make the whole organization more efficient around this, which makes you less, um, uh, which makes poss- uh, mistakes be less frequent, and so the the pressure is uh, a little bit less uh, crushing, let's say.
0: And I like the way that incident response is the, the term that's held there versus firefighting, Mm -hmm. because, um, as you mentioned, there are processes that are evaluated and we look into things. Um, so it's not just, you're fixing the, the situation that's at hand, you are preparing yourself for the future.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um,
0: So we brought monitoring into, into play. Um, what do you find valuable in a dashboard? Like, what are you looking for in order to try to prevent things in the future?
1: Right. So uh, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in the past couple of years is that before I used to think that, okay, um, I have this service that I'm responsible for being on call for and I have to have a dashboard for this service. But that's not, well, that's technically true, but you should not have only one dashboard for this service. Um One thing that we have started experimenting on with great success lately is to have specifically tailored dashboards for particular topics. So uh, to give you an example, we are responsible for the rate limiting feature, not zero. We as the SRE team, we own that feature and we own the service that is behind that feature. And something that uh, ended up happening a lot in, let's say a month ago, was that uh, other teams were having incidents, let's say, with uh, peaks of latency, and they would think, okay, but I'm not sure if this is related or not with rate limiting. Um, it might be the cause of the problem. Let's ping SRE and, and have them help us. And that's fine. That's That makes total sense. If they don't know how to check this, they should ask for help. That's fine. However, uh, I was answering the same questions over and over again and doing the same steps in order to diagnose that, okay, this is, in fact, rate-limiting or this is not rate-limiting. So I, did, I created a specific dashboard for our rate-limiting service, which is called LimitD. It's an open-source project, actually, um, that is called Is LimitD Misbehaving? And in that, we only have, I think, two graphs. They're very, very specific around reliability and latency. So when I, Jerseo, I work with this service on a daily basis, when I need to check something, I might check the full dashboard, which has all sorts of metrics and and visualizations that make sense to me. But for these other people that don't have enough context and they frankly, might not even be interested in knowing uh, all that stuff about this service, they only need to care about one thing. Is is behaving or not? Is LimitDB causing my problem or not? And when uh, we started uh, adding that, we, we created the dashboard, we started using that in incidents, we uh, uh, fine-tuned it to be more useful, and we started doing that for other services as well. And this has been a great success. So we have reduced a lot the amount of, let's say, pings that we get from different teams on incidents related to latency or other topics that they might think might involve our services because they are able to debug it themselves. So the lesson there is that it's very useful to have specific visualizations tailored to specific, let's say, niches or publics. Um, So you might have one dashboard that is for the team responsible for developing the service. One dashboard for leadership to check if the SLOs or the business metrics related to that service are okay. And one dashboard uh, to, I don't know, support or other people doing incident response to get more information and uh, quickly find out if they need to actually involve you or not.
0: I think that highlights a a really important thing. Um, I I have a few things regarding this, but having different dashboards for different people seems to make sense. Um, based on my experience at the company, I have a particularly problematic data store right now and half the metrics on there. I don't particularly know what they mean. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what the, the CPU thrashing is supposed to be for that particular data store. Um, I don't know what the page in and outs are supposed to be. Um, the metrics that are helpful for me on there typically involve how many errors our users are experiencing, um, how many 503s are going out. Does the data store still have uh, hard drive space remaining, things like that. Right. Um, so what I would find valuable is if I split off that dashboard into the metrics that mean a little bit more to me, but at the same time, it is nice to have, um, kind of an aggregation of all the things involving that, that data store that I can look at at a glance just to see if anything has happened to go very far into the red on one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, I, I think that it's a it's a constant work of balancing that. Uh, there is no clear-cut answer to how much information or how little information you should have on the dashboards. It's a it's really a balance and uh, curatory, I would say.
0: Do you think it's important for? For someone who's operating a service, let's say it's the team that developed it and they might not know a whole lot about operations. Um, do you think it's important that they understand everything on their dashboard or should they at least understand some key metrics that they can use to make decisions?
1: Huh. So it really depends. If this team uh, can do something about that information. So for instance, let's say that you have operational metrics about the Linux boxes that are running the service. But if you don't have access to those machines, if you can't do anything about the metrics that are there, uh, they might still be useful for correlation, let's say to see that uh, CPU increased every time you have a spike of errors or something like that. But it's it's an interesting and usually useful effort to try to pare down the the metrics that you see to what you can act upon so uh, if the metrics are actionable in a way that let's say uh, if you have access and you have the tooling and uh, procedures in order to tell you how to react to a spike in that particular metric I think it's useful to have there otherwise it might be distracting it's something that uh, requires some Review after incidents, for instance, uh, something that uh, something of a problem that we have faced in the past is that, let's say that you had a, the, you had an an incident, uh, related to your service, and during that instance, that incident, you had a really big spike in memory used in that uh, particular box. You might be tempted to create Uh, visualization and uh, maybe a monitor for that to alarm you if something like that happens again but if you think about it that might be actually just a symptom just a correlation not necessarily what's causing the problem so maybe what you actually need is a custom metric to tell you that this particular endpoint is failing in a particular way instead of measuring memory which is a side product of that happening. So there's a, a long answer, but I, I think that this is something that can be very useful, but it can be quickly overwhelming if you don't review it often.
0: I think that segue is really good into the next portion of this, which is alerting. Um, hmm. Can you give us some, some good tips or a, a good battle story about alerting?
1: Yeah, of course. So when uh, we started implementing the what is now the, the current infrastructure for alerting in Zero? Um, we started using something called Datadog, which is a software as a service that we use to um, send our time series metrics and we use to create dashboards and monitors. And those monitors alert us on different tools like Slack and PagerDuty. Now, when you start using a tool like this, it's Datadog is really easy to use. So it's very, very tempting to start creating tons of visualizations in your dashboard and tons of monitors for every single detail about your system. That might seem fine in the beginning. That might seem actually like an improvement. However, if you start ignoring alerts because they are not actionable, let's say, oh, I got an alert about this endpoint being slow again and but this is normal this is that particular time of the day that this is always happening or oh this is happening again uh we have a small spike of latency for this particular customer but this is normal because of what they do if you start getting this kind of situation all the time you will train yourself to not look into the alerts you will train yourself to not give importance to what's coming And what might happen is that something real that is happening will be buried uh, in the noise that you're getting in Slack or whatever it is that you're using to consume your alerts. So in the beginning, one of the uh, first uh, improvements in monitoring that we wanted to do is that we wanted to be able to alert by customer. And that might seem fine for different services but in fact in Zero we have tens of thousands of uh, different accounts and, and I'm, I'm not even exaggerating this is uh, actually the case so when you have let's say an incident in which you have a spike of errors in let's say an authentication endpoint what would happen is that we would get tens of thousands of alerts uh, telling the same thing with slightly different values like, okay, customer A is having three errors per second, customer B is having 200 errors per second. And that is useless. That is worse than useless because it's so noisy that you might miss another alert that will point to the actual cause of the problem. So one thing that we have been doing uh, a lot recently is uh, at the end of every on-call shift for our crew, uh, for our team, and we are starting to to do that for other teams as well, we are reviewing everything that was alerted uh, during that shift. So every low priority alert, every high priority alert, and we go over them and we talk about, okay, is this noise or is this signal? Is this something that actually means what it should mean? Do we actually have an error here is this actionable like is there anything that we can do about this or is this just for information if it, if this is just for information we might as well remove it because we want to be alerted only on things that we can act upon then we start checking some other things so for instance One goal that we have and that we're not quite there yet, but we're working on it, is that we want every alarm to be actionable and to have an associated uh, playbook with it. So if you get on call for a service and you get an alert, you would know that, okay, first, that is valid. That is something that is actually happening. This is not as an of the monitoring system. And second, that you can click on the link that comes together with the alert and uh, go over the steps to either mitigate it or uh, call someone that needs to be there to, to help you with that so I think that this is one of the the most common mistakes when teams are getting on call is to get too excited about uh, the how easy it is to create new monitors and create new dashboards and overwhelm themselves with uh, unnecessary details and uh, noise that might end up, in fact, uh, making things worse.
0: This topic is near and dear to my heart, <laughs> because we have, we've inundated ourselves with alerts um, yeah. for one of uh, the beta products on our team. And it goes off quite frequently. Uh, one of the reasons is that we use a Oh, I don't know. It's like a running window. Maybe you know the term for it, but we calculate it based on the recent history. Mm -hmm. So if we get a surge in traffic, for instance, um, maybe in that particular region, there's just been more events that have happened. uh, The alert will go off and it's not actionable. We can't do anything with it. It's supposed to happen. So we've, we've fiddled with the numbers a little bit. Um, If we turned it up, then we got alerted all the time. If we turned it down, well, we've we've missed one or two from that. So it seems like certain alerts are more valuable than others. And maybe your first guess at what an alert should be based on, or maybe the threshold for alert is probably not going to be right. Yeah. Um, do you have any tips for trying to pick out? I know this, this is probably too vague of a question. Do you have any tips yeah. for trying to pick out the right kind of alerting?
1: Yeah, yeah I understand exactly what you mean. Uh, we have problems with that uh, as well. And one of the things that we always do is to give each alarm a probatory period, let's say. So we create a monitor, uh, we set up some thresholds based on, let's say the last month of historical data, just to have uh, an educated guess. And then uh, instead of sending it to the proper um, alerting channels, let's say, a particular Slack channel that the team listens to or to PagerDuty, we send it to a testing channel. And with that, Hmm. we can um, check if that is being noisy and adjust the thresholds without affecting too much anyone. Because this is not going to wake anyone up, this is not going to um, scare the team, like oh, whoa, there's something going on, let's let's swarm together and, and try to fix it. And we can kind of make sure that the thresholds are okay before we upgrade that monitor into something real, into something that will interact with, let's say, PagerDuty.
0: So I guess more going back to a general concept here, if you had to kind of describe to someone who has never been on call, which realistically is probably a large majority of people listening to this, it's a large majority of people that we hire. They've not been on call to operate a service they've developed. Um, now, if someone's worked DevOps in the past or Ops in the past, they're probably very used to this idea. But for a software engineer who's going into their first role where they have an on-call duty, um, what would what kind of advice would you give them? What would you tell them to prepare for?
1: Hmm. So this is interesting. The, the first thing is to ensure that you understand their responsibilities. Um, a lot of people, when they start being on call, and this might be different from uh, on on different organizations, but for Alturo, uh, when you are on call, when you're primary on call, your responsibility is to respond to incidents. That doesn't mean that you have to fix the problem yourself. It means that you should be there to organize people and to try to debug the issue and communicate to customers. But it doesn't mean that you have to know everything, that you have to know how to fix or how to debug, or uh, it's it's much less of a problem than most people think it is. Um, one thing that I always uh, try to to tell people when they're starting is that okay, one thing that you can do is to shadow one of the on call people uh, for a week, a couple of weeks, and you will see that most likely. Uh, they are not fixing the incidents themselves. So a lot of the incidents that I was involved with, the the hardest ones, uh, I needed to pull people in from several different teams. I needed to um, get people together. I needed to communicate to customers. I needed to um, assign tasks to different people, but I didn't need to fix the problem myself because sometimes the problem was not actually with my service. But my service issue was a symptom of a, an underlying issue that was deeper than that so this is this is something that don't fret out because you might not need to actually fix a problem under high pressure. You might just need to call people and get help and uh, mitigate the problem that that is that is one, and that is really important because uh, a lot of the Hard parts about being on call are psychological hurdles because uh, yeah. right it, sometimes you have really quiet weeks and that feels okay, but even then you get this in the back of your head like okay, I might be alerted at any moment I might be paged at 3 am So um, try to chill. I know this is hard in the beginning, but try to uh, be confident. And in that, you can get help. There is no shame in asking for help from anyone. Um, I have had bad incidents in which I had to assign tasks to directors and to um, some of the, the company business partners because they were there and I needed help. And I said, hey, can you please uh, post this to your status page? Can you please pay go phone uh, that person because we need them here? And that, that is fine. That is not a problem. So uh, there are um, other things like that you can do way before you get on call for the first time that might be helpful. So you might want to get um, kind of a cheat sheet with links to every dashboard, every uh, links to, to logs and to everything that you might need in order to find out where a problem is if a problem is happening you might also want to create some cheat sheets for okay how can i actually find out if a problem is happening like we have the symptoms but how can i confirm so this might mean a different dashboard this might mean a particular type of log that you need to search for and so on and so forth so try to uh, over prepare it first it might help with the psychological side which is the hardest so uh, get a lot of chit-chits get a lot of people that uh, you know how to contact oh this is a, a good point you should know how to contact people if you rely on oh i can just check in slack like what is their phone number and call them that might be tricky because they might be in another country or they might not actually listen to their phones so um, If you are in an organization in which you can page people, know what is the mechanism to do that. And that can help you if you actually have a problem. Um, Another thing that is really important to remember is that you will make mistakes and that is okay. Uh, I have made several mistakes in the past uh, in my first on-calls. So I had uh, incidents in which I had to, let's say, restart a cluster And due to some, um, let's say, poor tagging, I restarted the wrong cluster. (laughs) And I ended up causing a parallel incident to what was happening. Now, it's really easy to beat yourself up about that. And that was not a problem. No one, absolutely no one ever complained to me about that one. Why? Because it's a problem of the process. So this is something that's really, really, really important to keep in mind. I made a mistake because of poor tagging and I ended up restarting the wrong cluster and causing a problem now what is wrong there is that the process is wrong the tooling is wrong I should not have to guess I should not have to spend time uh, understanding this this should be quick and easy so try to get a sense for the tools that you can use to debug the tools that you can use to be alerted on um, test out the the tools that will actually page you, let's say, if you use PagerDuty, try to send a testing notification to ensure that your phone is properly configured. And uh, yeah, just keep in mind that you will make mistakes, some things will go wrong, and that is completely
0: fine. How do you get over the mental hurdle of realizing <clears throat> that you have to perform at your best at possibly three o'clock in the morning?
1: Hmm. So... This is hard in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, I used to work, uh, when I when I was primary on call, I, was, I used to work my, let's say, 40 hours a week. And even if I had a bad incident, like a four hours incident during the middle of the night, I would still get up and start working at 7 a.m. like I do every day. And that is a really poor choice. Uh, when you're on call, You need to perform well. Like you said, you need to be able to perform well at 3 a.m. After a big dinner or something like that. and You need to be sharp. You need to make good decisions. Sometimes that means that you need to take a nap in the middle of the day. Sometimes that means that if you had a bad incident during the night, you don't work at all in the next day. That is okay. Your job, when you are on call, is to respond to incidents and if you have the time and bandwidth to make operational improvements in your service. But you should take care of yourself, not just because it's the right thing to do, but if you're a corporate drone and you need to think in those terms, happy, well-rested people will make better decisions and will make fewer mistakes. So if you need to rationalize why you should take a nap in the middle of the day, that is a good excuse.
0: So that made me think of one more thing with incident management. When there is a long on-running process, um, let's say it's an incident that spans, you know, let's say eight hours. It's a really bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle rotating shifts? Um, should the one person just force themselves to stay awake if they've been up for 24 hours? H- how should that be handled?
1: Yeah, no, they, they should not be awake. So what we try to aim for is that uh, you should not stay in an incident for more than three or four hours. Um, usually incidents are really high pressure. So, one hour in an incident is not the same level of, uh, of pressure and uh, you get way more tired than in one hour of software development, let's say. So, when you're on call, usually people organize themselves in different levels of rotation. So, you have the primary on call, which might be the one responding to the incident that is long-running, and you might have a secondary that could respond to, let's say, parallel incidents. One thing that we try to do is to hand off things to the secondary. If the secondary is not available, we try to get someone from the team and just get them to help and no one ever said no. We have had uh, a couple of uh, really bad incidents uh, sometimes uh, being kind of low key happening for more than 24 hours. And that is really, really tough. So what we always try to do is that, okay, if you are responding to the incident if you are commanding the incident you should make the shots you should make the decisions until you delegate when you delegate you delegate very explicitly like hey Matt can you please take over this incident if you say yes then you are the new incident commander and you make the shots now it's uh, important to be explicit and to get an explicit a- acknowledgement as well from the next person but yeah never ever ever try to be on an incident for more than eight hours you might feel tempted to just buckle up and do that but don't that's that's stupid take care of yourself Uh, you need to rest if you need help from your team ask for help people will ask for your help as well so don't try to like oh i don't want to bother these people this is nonsense it's a team So work as a team.
0: So I think as one of the wrap-up topics, um, and it's certainly not a minimal topic, but um, let's talk about postmortems, which is the the thing you write kind of as you go or maybe after the incident is completed. I've pretty much learned everything I know about postmortems from you. So I think you're a good person to help teach the audience.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So postmortems, exist in basically two levels. You have uh, internal postmortems and you have public postmortems. The internal postmortem is arguably the most important one. Now, this might feel kind of shocking because we actually need to talk to customers about these things and uh, our salespeople will probably kill me. But in fact, the public postmortem should come from the private one. So what is this whole postmortem thing about? After you have an incident and you mitigate the problem or you actually fix the problem, you need to review what happened. You need to ensure that these don't happen again, or at least you need to ensure that your odds of that happening again are reduced. So what we try to do in 0 we have a a template for a postmortem that I took from somewhere. I think it was from one of the... um, o'reilly books on sre that's uh, a really good template that asks a few interesting questions so for instance it asks what was the problem in a short description let's say oh the the http api started failing Uh, what's the impact impact in terms of customer impact oh um 13 of all the requests made between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. failed with an HTTP 500. Now, these questions are geared towards making you think about the problem and measure exactly what happened. Because when you measure, you can start actually um, managing and fixing these problems. It also asks what went right, what didn't, and where did we get lucky? So let's say that what went right is that we responded to the incident in less than two minutes and the incident, the, the problem was mitigated in less than five minutes. What went wrong might be that um, we were not alerted by that via monitoring. Actually, a customer complained on Twitter. And where did we get lucky might be that... Uh, the problem could have been much worse in environment a because in that environment you don't have a failover i'm just throwing out things here but the the important thing is to ask these questions and then you go to the most important thing which is the root cause so we try to ask ourselves five whys until we reach the the, the actual root cause maybe Okay, why did the HTTP API started failing? Oh, because there was a bug in this particular endpoint. Why? Oh, because um, uh, we didn't catch this particular edge case in our, when we were planning this endpoint. Uh, why? Oh, because we didn't talk to customers about this before. Why? Because engineering doesn't have a good bridge to talk to customers about new uh, features like this. So you start getting deeper and deeper and you see these systematic issues, these these underlying issues that might be really, really big and fixing that will be much, much more effective than fixing the symptom, which is that particular bug that caused problems. So, when you do that, very often, every time you have an incident, uh, you start actually fixing a lot of the underlying issue that could be uh, big problem generators, let's say. So, uh, we always try to use this this, um, post-mortem template as a guide. So, what happened? What was the impact? What was the timeline? what went well, what didn't, where did we get lucky, and what is the actual root cause of the problem. When we have all that information, we can start talking about next actions. So, okay, we need to create a playbook that someone can follow in the next time something like this happens, so they can respond faster. Or we need to improve monitoring, so we, need, we get alerted by something like this automatically, instead of, relying on customers telling us that we had this problem after you made all this analysis and you delegated all the action items you can actually much more easily extract the public postmortem from that Uh, what will happen ideally is that you will take all that information make that um, use a, a proper language for customers so instead of talking about one internal service name you will use the the terms that we use when we interact with customers so instead of api xyz we talk management api for instance uh, and you might just remove links to your project management and stuff like that but usually the actual public postmortem should be more or less uh, uh, translation and honest translation of the private postmortem
0: the postmortems force you to be honest um they're they're a bit of work to get them good like to make a quality postmortem there's some time investment there but it forces you to be introspective and use data yes um so if i ever claim that well this only hits like let's say five percent of all customers where's the evidence that it was five percent Right. So we always go back in. Let's, you know, hook it up to your your logging system. So for us, um, let's say Kibana, I'll go in and pull a graph, drop the link into the postmortem so that anybody can verify my data later. Um, it also helps remove that, that tendency that developers have to say, well, well, it was probably like 30%, or it was, yeah. you know, I think it was only in the US. Um, you can't guess. You have to give accurate, um, accurate data and accurate numbers for both internal usage and for the customers. Um, you know, like sometimes it's frustrating when I really just want to solve the problem. But as soon as I'm not panicking anymore, like trying to get through the the problem, I, I love it. And it's actually kind of cathartic. Yeah. After all that chaos, it's time to just sit down and um, compile all those charts if I didn't already have them open during the incident. So I think it's a it's a really good process, and I think it's important for a company really of any size um Absolutely. you know if you're the only person working on something, even being a little analytical is going to save you a lot of time in you know the next two months when you've forgotten everything that just happened
1: yeah, and it actually leads to um improvements on areas that you might not be even thinking about so okay uh if we find out that the root cause is that engineering didn't get this information from customers that is a big problem that is a problem that might not have been surfaced in a different way so uh, you start seeing lots of improvements in areas that might not be trivially linked to incidents and that's really cool that's really interesting
0: yeah i love when it goes cross cross organizational i guess we'll say or cross discipline um just to start getting everybody involved because you know, if you're siloed in engineering, you t- tend to just see the engineering problems. But when you get everybody involved, you start seeing how the systemic flow goes. It's like, okay, this is why we keep failing on this type of incident. Um, yeah. This is why we see issues in this region. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all that data is very cool. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted uh, to point out about SRE related topics or incident response or anything like that that I've forgotten to ask? Hmm.
1: Uh, I, I think that one thing is that we are hiring, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, are, nice. we are hiring uh, new software engineers to work on the SRE team in Otero. Um We uh, need to improve that pipeline. Uh, there are lots of interesting and fun challenges to work on uh, related to reliability, scalability, um, even content producing, if you're into that, I have been doing a lot of writing uh, in order to get people more in touch with these topics, uh, in terms of uh, engineers working on uh, on on-call and being on incident response. So uh, there are lots of interesting challenges and we would love to uh, chat with anyone that is interested. So just go to auth slash jobs and search for site reliability and you'll find the job pools team.
0: I'm going to take a minute to just kind of reinforce how awesome your team is. Uh, so the SRE team at Auth0 puts out so much good content. Uh, they, they do regular training videos for the rest of us so we can kind of get a an idea of how their day-to-day works and the areas that they can help us improve. And every time it's entirely attention-grabbing. Um, And then we record them later. So if somebody can't make that particular meeting, like maybe they're in Europe and the time zone doesn't work, we get to watch it later with the slide deck down below if we can't watch with sound. Uh, Real fantastic stuff. So you'll be joining a a really solid crew there. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I love your content. It makes my day. (laughs) Um, Okay. um, Is there anything else you wanted me to include? Like, do you have... um, a book that you recommend or some particular blog post that you find interesting that you can think of offhand?
1: Yes, uh, there is a, a new book uh, called Seeking SRE that is really interesting with uh, different chapters written by uh, people from uh, different companies. And talking about all these kinds of problems with uh, large scale system design and scalability and reliability and processes in tech and all that is related to SRE. And it's a really, really interesting book. I have been having a blast reading it. It's on O'Reilly Safari. I'm not sure if it's released yet in the full version.
0: Excellent. I'll find that and in, include it in the show notes. Um, do you know if we have a blog on our engineering blog or on the Auth0 primary blog regarding uh, anything SRE related?
1: Uh, we have a couple of uh, blog posts that we published recently about. Um, how we architect Altura to uh, work in the cloud with 1.5 billion authentication requests per month or something like that. So if you check the Alturo blog and search for my name, uh, there are a couple of blog posts related to uh, service architecture and the data stores that we
0: use in Altura. Is that most recent one? Is that the one that InfoQ picked up?
1: Uh, yes, and there is one that we published last Friday, I think, about the data, different data stores. That is a public mm-hmm. version of the SRE talk that I gave about how we use MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Postgres, and other stuff in Auth0.
0: Nice. I'll have to go read through that one. Awesome. Uh, let see. Show notes for this episode can be found at podcast.auth0.com. Wait a minute, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I smacked the spring on my microphone stand and distracted myself. <laughs> All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at podcast.bitsandtrees.com five. Um Drusso, thank you very much for joining me today. I thought this content was great. Um S R E is very exciting. I just I don't have the guts for it.
1: <laughs> Come on. Everyone has it's a matter of training. All right. Thanks, man. This was really fun.